This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. I got to get you up to speed on our hot question of the day. It's pretty simple. It's a yes or no. Is it time for Vancouver City Hall to declare a homelessness emergency? Yes or no? You can get me on Twitter at Jody Vance at CKNW or you can email Jody at CKNW.com. Always our buzz line 604-331-BUZZ. 604-331-2899. This commission cannot interfere with prosecutions or arrests that are simply not happening. And without the commission's work, will never happen. I am concerned that the commission could be knocked off pace by a self-interested party, vexatiously raising concerns about some unspecified potential future prosecution, or what could possibly be, but is currently not and may never be, a criminal investigation. We will encourage the Commission to interrogate any objections about potential investigations or prosecutions aggressively, because this is a public inquiry into criminal activities. Of necessity, by calling this Commission, government has accepted, and we will urge the Commission to accept, that they may need to walk into territory that is usually exclusively, but has not been for reasons that are unknown, the territory of the police. This balancing exercise between non-interference and criminal investigations and establishing a comprehensive understanding of how money laundering is working in our province will be difficult, but critically important to the success of the Commission. Shutting down lines of inquiry over-cautiously will undermine the overwhelming desire of British Columbians for a public airing of these matters. 77% of British Columbians wanted this inquiry called, according to a poll by a research company. 90% of British Columbians believe money laundering is a problem that needs to be addressed in our province, according to Angus Reid. That is Attorney General David Eby speaking from the ledge this morning here in Vancouver, a day many have been counting down to, the Cullen Commission's inquiry into money laundering. The Cullen uh, inquiry tasked with listening to concerns and garnering feedback from British Columbians on how dirty money being cleaned through gambling and real estate, luxury cars, among other things, hitting our provinces uh, literally right where we live. One of the great uh, global investigative journalists who brought the depth and breadth of organized crime in our region uh, to the forefront is joining me on the line now, Sam Cooper. Thanks for being with us, Sam. Thanks, Jody. Can we do a little bit of a walk down uh, memory lane here on uh, how you started to dig into this? I mean, you really did bring it to the forefront. Can you walk us through the early days? Sure. Uh, It's a very long story to boil it down. Um, I really started to look at uh, very um, unusual real estate market activity in Vancouver. After 2010, the prices were just uh, rising pretty much exponentially year to year. There was really no explanation or connection to local incomes or economic activity. I started to notice some very uh, large investors, a lot of crowdfunding pretty much all of it connected to mainland China. I then found that some of these uh, people were suspected of criminal activity uh, in another country, uh, China. And, you know, that in a nutshell really led to uh, discoveries around casino activity, real estate money laundering, and eventually um, alleged uh, drug trafficking activity. I found really it was all about finding big fish 
and then seeing network connections. So that was all about um, my investigation. And as it rolled, you know, people were reading it. These would be people in government, police, uh, casino companies, regulators. And I started to hear from some essentially saying, you're on the right track. We're following the same people. So there was sometimes, you know, a little bit of help in understanding, sometimes pointing to documents. And in some cases, documents that uh, under Canada's laws wouldn't have come out. But it was very important that they did. They they helped me establish a, a lot of facts. And I, I really do believe that's why we're here today uh, at, at this inquiry. So you're referencing their Freedom of Information Act uh, papers that you were able to request and then dig through. How much paper are we talking about here, Sam? Literally thousands of records, uh, years of digging through legal applications. And again, sometimes um, records that didn't come out through freedom of information, records that never would have been released, records that, to use the simple term, were leaked by people that believed that uh, our governments in Canada just weren't uh, following this crime. And we just heard Minister Eby say, look, this inquiry is... Uh, going to be pushing the boundaries of what police in Canada should have been doing. That's why we're here. So thousands of records, a lot of connecting of dots, a lot of legal vetting, a lot of editing went into this work. And uh, it really is, I believe, a case where the media for a long time has really been the only institution that has been sounding the alarm of what's going on in BC. So uh, it is gratifying that we're here today in this inquiry. And we thank you for that. Sam Cooper is global national investigative journalist and has been on this story for more than a decade. And uh, Sam, when we do talk about the government's reaction, I mean, people will say, well, of course, David Eby is going to try and pin this on the liberal government. And of course, the liberal governments are going to say, well, you know, we, we couldn't figure it out like anybody else couldn't figure it out like what what do you make of it because the answer is somewhere in the middle is it not well you you're absolutely right there in fact i just talked to one of the whistleblowers that was very important in in my investigations and, and will be important uh, in the inquiry the person said i expect to hear a lot of people that were responsible or indirectly responsible pointing fingers upwards, downwards, and sideways, no one really stepping up and taking responsibility. And one of the important uh, factors for Global News was saying, yes, of course, in the past decade, as uh, Peter German said, this exploded. But look, we went back to the 90s and spoke to whistleblowers inside the casinos that said, hey, it was the NDP that raised betting limits from $25 to $500 and brought in Baccarat, the favored game in Macau money laundering. And that really kicked it off. So it's fair to say a lot of people and, and multiple governments, multiple politicians should be taking, we believe, some responsibility. I think that is such a very key point in this, Sam, that change where casinos went from sort of a fun place to go and it kind of helped out, you know, in your local community. And then all of a sudden it was legitimized in a way that became more of a Vegas model without the checks and balances, perhaps, or the professional um, gatekeeping and, and, I don't even know what the term is for some, I mean, how somebody could walk in, as you so famously wrote, with a duffel bag full of $20 bills and nobody flags that. Well, that's exactly it. Common sense, any reasonable person uh, doesn't have to be a police investigator to, to realize that. And that's exactly what the police, uh, you know, uh, 
detectives that that talk to me say, hey, on the street, if you you, you look at that bag of 500,000 coming in, no one in their right mind says that it's not likely crime money. But that's exactly what was happening really for decades. And uh, I have to say it was sort of, you know, the best excuses. This was in the context of really a, a big sort of trade and economic strategy where we were looking to the east for a lot of investment. And then what occurred really, um, when I boil it down, is that people that were in positions of power really didn't want to know about <laughs> the origins of a lot of this money. And that's, that's what happened on a macro level. Sam, what, of, what do you make of the fact that there has been basically zero accountability on any level with regard to this file, money laundering? Well, it's a, that's really the, the question at, at the center of this inquiry, and that would be, you know, was there corruption that occurred where regulators and police didn't um, uphold their mandates, which is to uphold the law for Canadian citizens? So I think we can say that, you know, why wasn't there accountability? I'm told by, by police investigators that there just was really no interest up at the upper levels in governments to look into the nature of this money that was coming in in hockey bags because everyone uh, with you know responsibility knew it was coming in in hockey bags a lot of people knew that you know just because someone calls themselves an import export business person didn't mean they were that in many cases police suspected they were connected to drug trafficking and so if people in the government knew that and were told that they weren't interested in having police investigate would that be willful blindness or something worse those are the questions we need to answer but we can say with certainty that in canada money laundering isn't investigated and and prosecuted we have the studies around that and it just seems to be a case where i think cynics and um you know credible cynics would say this was about a lot of uh, money coming in to boost canada's economy and people just decided it wasn't important because uh, a lot of people were making good money and that really i think to the layperson is the piece we have to follow that money. Where where was that little bit off the edge of the desk going to possibly have somebody turn a blind eye? And where's the accountability to that individual? Well, yeah, and there's two that that gets at really two key questions. If I'm an investigator or a commission lawyer, is there a difference between turning a blind eye because it benefits the economy and we've decided money laundering is a victimless crime? We now know it's not. No. Three people per day are dying of opioid overdoses in BC. So we know that's not true. But that's one thing. Uh, you could say that's naivety, stupidity, stupidness, short term thinking. But are there people that, you know, were getting consulting gigs after, you know, leaving the government or taking a job in a casino and turning a blind eye? Look, I can tell you that there's evidence that suggests we need to look very strongly at that because that would be the worst type of corruption. And I, I'm hopeful that the commission gets into that territory because I know there are people that think they have to. When in an inquiry like this um, is underway, vetting of that seems to be the topic this morning is who might vet, vet the government documents that are given to the commission? Should there be any vetting of documents or should documents just simply be turned over? Well, in an ideal world, they'd be turned over, but we know that there are many well-paid uh, lawyers, um, you know, uh, representing the parties withstanding. Again, I talked to my whistleblower source and that uh, the person said, 
exactly what you pointed to. Those documents should be turned over, but there's going to be a heck of a fight to make sure that um, if you've got a smoking gun and you're a lawyer, or is it in your interest for to turn it over for your client? No, you'd be doing your job in a bad way. So I think that there, there's going to be fights, but from where I stand, the commission is going to be, ha- you know, have to be very forceful in using their powers to subpoena documents and drill down into what are the most important documents, because I don't think anyone will be served if, you know, they get, uh, you know, a million documents. They have to get the right documents. Unredacted. That's right. Absolutely. Unredacted. Like some of the key records I got that allowed uh, uh, our investigations to connect, you know, these top uh, money laundering whale suspects to alleged drug traffickers, to alleged real estate money laundering, and beyond. We've also heard today that uh, money can be laundered in, uh, in tuitions at, uh, you know, VC's best universities. And Jody, I'll just give you a little tip now. Please. One of the persons in my police studies that, uh, that is pointed to as, um, we'll just say, a, a developer, an alleged narco, is allegedly, well, we know, was a student in BC. So look, these are the issues that I, I know something about, and I think be, uh, you know, people who watch the inquiry hopefully will know more as it comes out, because it's very dangerous territory to report on. Uh, it is. And when people speak to how much due diligence may or may not go into investigative journalism in 2020, I can speak from first-hand knowledge of of how closely and detail-orientated and and how lawyered, vetted, double-checked, triple-checked, and multi-sourced all of your pieces are, which is why they've garnered the level of attention and respect, Sam. Um, I think it's important to point out that, you know, you're not just going on, when you say a source, you're double and triple checking what your sources say to make sure that you have documents to back up these things. Globalnews.ca is where you can find a link to watch the Cullen Commission.ca. Uh, it is all for public consumption and it's fascinating here as well and, and should be noted, I think, Sam, that you, if you are asked to appear in front or before the Cullen Commission's inquiry into money laundering, you are compelled to do so, Correct. That's my understanding. I, I've read that whether you're a, an alleged gangster or a government employee or, or anyone, you can be compelled. Certainly, um, from my understanding, you know, the, the, these actions aren't taken lightly. So I don't know what considerations go, go into that, but I expect that we'll hear from most or all of the people the commission wants to hear from. Do you believe that you've exhausted all possible avenues of how money laundering has been impacted? Or do you think that perhaps the, the criminals like that looked at the Vancouver model and laughed at the Vancouver model and, and really exploited it have found a new way around um, and new loopholes? I mean, we, we talk about FinTrack a lot. We talk about how the RCMP unit was dissolved that was supposed to look into and follow along with money laundering and the issues surrounding it. Uh, where do you think we're at now and moving forward with, with this regard? Well, that's a great question. I mean, the, the one thing we know from the experts, and, and I can see it, is that when m- money laundering is like water or playing whack-a-mole, when you hit organized crime in one area, they're still selling the drugs, they still have warehouses of cash or cryptocurrency, to jump ahead of myself, and that's going to move into other areas. So, uh, you know, another source had told me in the 1990s when they saw that, uh, you know, of course, the Internet was growing in leaps and bounds, 
that's when police in Vancouver recognized that infrastructure for money laundering was being established, making BC a corporate headquarters, really, of global narco-trafficking. So the internet is a huge play in, in how money's laundered, and we've heard this morning that cryptocurrency is going to be part of what we hear about, and uh, I absolutely see a lot in, in that area already. All right, that's that's where whack-a-mole goes next. And in, in terms of how this issue has spread from BC really being ground zero to a, across the country, is what we've learned, is what you have uncovered and, and what, what you've exposed helped to sort of stave this off from affecting other major centres across the country? We can say with certainty that, you know, in a, it was a bit of a frustration for reporters in British Columbia and experts that Ottawa didn't seem to be paying attention to money laundering. That's starting to change. We had calls in the last election for a, a national money laundering inquiry. Uh, it, it didn't work out that way, but I'm certain that people in Ottawa are very uh, are paying attention to this, this inquiry. I mean, uh, we have already established that uh, suspicious transactions in Ontario casinos spiked in 2018 when there was a crackdown in 2018 uh, in BC. So you can see how that water flows. You can see the direct correlation. And I do believe that uh, this needs to be a national uh, study and conversation. Thank you so much for this, Sam. Thanks, Jody. That's Sam Cooper, Global National Investigative Journalist. You should read him. You should watch him. Let's head to the U.S. Capitol now and check in with our friend Reggie Cicchini, who is a Global National Reporter and Producer in D.C. Hey, Reggie. Good morning. So where to begin? Where do we start? Yeah, it's, it's kind of a choose-your-adventure of potentially bad stories across the U.S. right now. What's your, what's your big headline sitting at your desk right now? Well, you know what? I would say the biggest headline right now uh, is is probably what's going on on the markets. And yeah. it's simply because there are so many people, not only across the U.S., across Canada and across the world, that have Im- been impacted by this. And it all started overnight when markets across Asia and throughout Europe uh, were essentially tanking on, on fears that this coronavirus is going to become some uh, bigger global pandemic. And it's really putting pressure on, on the U.S. And as you heard during the news there, you know, we at one point today were under a thousand points. We've rebounded slightly into the minus 900s, but there is some serious investor worry right now based on what's going on with this global health crisis. Right, a slowing economy given the fact that people start traveling less, perhaps not buying as much, maybe saving and stockpiling their money to be careful about any future issues with this. Like the, the fear piece is real, even as those fears are being somewhat mitigated by scientists who are saying this is not as bad as it could have been. This is not as bad as what we saw with SARS that a, that a lot large piece of the puzzle here, the people that are testing positive for COVID-19 are recovering after suffering the symptoms. Certainly those with compromised immune systems uh, are, are not necessarily able to recover from pneumonia or worse, but it's it's fascinating. Once you, you start talking about, you know, shops closing in Milan and art galleries closing there and Milan Fashion Week being put on hold or the fashion shows will go on, but there will be no audience and everything will be live streamed. I mean, I think that those all just took things, certainly in the Western world, to the next level. Of course it does, and it, it brings a realness of this illness closer to home, or at least closer to people who may not have been impacted by this just as of yet. But when we're looking at, you know, in terms of numbers here, sure, science is saying that it may not be uh, as bad as it could have been, but there's also that unknown factor as to what happens down the line. Could there potentially be any kind of fallout to the things that we're not catching right now or the things that we're not seeing? And that's why we're seeing this kind of drop in the markets. We're seeing travel-related industries, the airline industry, the hotel industry, the restaurant industry being 
being impacted by this with their numbers being brought down. Investors running to the safety of things like gold because they're just worried about what is going to happen uh, on this kind of global market. I mean, look, China is at the epicenter of this right now. Their GDP is 16%. Back during SARS, they were only 6% of global uh, domestic output here. So it's a massive uh, country with a massive market that's been essentially shut down. And that's what's creating all of this kind of jitter on the markets. Yeah. Let's talk about what was happening politically in the U.S. over the weekend. Absolutely. I mean, this was a big moment for Bernie Sanders in Nevada. This was a win that he was anticipated to get, but I don't think anyone anticipated that it would be as big of a win for him or at least as big of a loss for those running in the middle. Bernie Sanders walking away with more than 40% of that Nevada caucus vote, picking up another a couple of handfuls of delegates sitting at over 40 right now. Uh, but essentially what it does is puts pressure on those running in the middle. Joe Biden, Amy, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Pete Buttigieg, Elizabeth Warren, they're all siphoning off each each other's voters right now. And because of that, there's just no room for them to gain momentum. So at, at some point, somebody in the middle is going to have to drop out. And that's the only way you're going to give somebody else an opportunity to try and overtake Bernie Sanders. So question for you, and pardon me if it's a silly question. I really, I, there's nothing to say that if you drop out of the, uh, the, the Democratic nominee race, that you couldn't ultimately become uh, the other piece of a ticket with somebody who does win the nomination, right? That's that's true. You, you, you can. Nothing says just because you've dropped out that you say couldn't be tapped to be somebody's vice president. But it also, the way that the U.S. election works, you have to build up delegates. And if you don't have the maximum number of delegates needed by the time the convention where you choose the nominee takes place in the summertime, it goes to what's called a brokered convention. And it, literally anybody could be nominated at that point if they can get the delegates. So you could drop out of the race right now. And if no Nobody has enough delegates by the summertime, re-enter the race and maybe be a fan favorite. So there's a lot of moving parts and unknowns as to what's going to happen right now. But for the moment, everyone is simply staring at Bernie, uh, staring rather at Bernie Sanders and his ability to, at the very beginning of this, run away with all of the votes. And what of this intel that said Vladimir Putin, the Russians, they meddled in 2016 and they are continuing to do so in 2020 and people trying to draw a direct line to this surge in support for Bernie Sanders, at least from an online perspective that might be associated with bots or uh, Russian interference. Is that all just rumor mill fodder? Well, there there are conversations that are ongoing that there is a, an ongoing and current a bit of Russian interference in the election. And I mean, this was something that was anticipated. Obviously, mm-hmm. it was a big deal in 2016. Bernie Sanders says he was notified about this almost a month ago, but didn't come forward uh, until the Washington Post had put their story out late last week. Uh, the president is said to have been uh, in communication with uh, national intelligence people to say that, yes, Russian interference is uh, is taking place. I think what's important to note here is that Congress was had the ability to kind of counteract this and be able to put election security measures in place. And the bill has essentially failed or been sitting on the desk of Mitch McConnell, and they haven't taken up that opportunity to deal with election security measures right now because there's a fear that it could potentially work its way to the president who might perceive it wrong. So it's been sitting there. So Russian interference is a thing right now, and the U.S. Congress is essentially stalled in being able to fight it. Oh, Reggie. So wait a minute. Can I, I need this in layman's terms. They, they know that it happened in 2016. They, they know that it's likely happening now in the lead up to 2020. And it's sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk right now and nobody's doing anything about it because they don't want the president to be upset. 
that, 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 that is a big part of it right now. Democrats have been saying we put the bill through the House. We have the bill that's been waiting for your uh, signature in the Senate to be able to pass this off. Wow. And the Senate simply won't bring it up. They're not entertaining any bills that are being moved forward by the Democrats. Uh, and, and, you know, this is a party that says this is the do nothing Democrats. But at the end of the day, this is a do nothing Senate that's been controlled by the Republicans that is actively working to ensure that the, you know, safety of elections is not being upheld. So Russians, inter- uh, Russian interference in the elections right now, maybe it wouldn't be fully stopped, but it, it could at least potentially be uh, kind of, you know, curtailed or, or slowed down if this bill was allowed to move its way through. Insert my- my mind-blown emoji into that part of this conversation. Reggie, I want to ask you one more thing. Where do we go now that we've got Nevada in the books? What's next? We have South Carolina, which is going to uh, be a big moment for Joe Biden on Saturday. He's put all of his eggs into that one basket, saying he's the one who can take a diverse vote and bring it to a kind of a fruition and a win for him. There's a debate tomorrow night. We'll see how he does in that. The thing is, Joe Biden going into Saturday's uh, South Carolina primary, he was leading the, the African-American vote with almost 50, 60, 70 percent. That's been whittled down to almost 30 percent with Bernie Sanders now starting to erode some of that support. So if Joe Biden can't get a win in South Carolina, that will be his fourth loss in a row. And it's hard to see how he's able to move forward going into those delegate heavy rich states on Super Tuesday. So there's the debate is on Tuesday. The debate is this uh, is tomorrow. Tomorrow. Sorry. Uh, And then it gives them an opportunity to kind of get that last minute, get the vote out message. And then the primary takes place in South Carolina, the big one before we head into that massive day of Super Tuesday. Same group on stage as the last M debate. Are we going to see Mike Bloomberg there again? Mike Bloomberg is expected to be there. The only ones who won't be likely are Tom Steyer and Tulsi Gabbard, not qualifying for the debates, but still in the race. And if you're looking actually uh, at South Carolina, Tom Steyer, oddly enough, is polling third throughout that state, which goes to show you, you may not have any name recognition, but money can buy you a long way. Wow. You've covered the gamut for us today, Reggie. Happy Monday to you. Thank you. <laughs> Reggie Cicchini, our global national Washington, D.C. reporter, producer, always makes himself available to give us all the updates. Uh, I owe you one, pal. Thanks for that. It's holy moly. As you might have heard Terry Shintz just mentioned, the Dow is down 962. The TSX down 270 or 287, that is. We've seen this nosedive this morning, um, mostly in the news, on the news of the surge in uh, COVID-19 cases, South Korea and Northern Italy both. But whenever there is something taking place, in the markets. We want to talk to the man who talks markets each and every weekend here on the Chorus Radio Network. Of course, I'm talking about Michael Campbell, the host of Money Talks, 8.30 a.m. here in B.C. and across the Chorus Network. Uh, Michael, thanks for taking a moment out of your uh, day for us here. And you're right. It's quite a busy one. I mean, um, we've been talking about this. Uh, One of the backgrounds and context that we have to appreciate, though, is that the markets have been making all-time highs. So they're always looking for an excuse to take some of that profit. And I agree with you. It's COVID-19. has certainly provided that excuse when the escalation went sort of, we were complacent about it in the stock market in North America. And then the perception started to be, oh, my gosh, maybe it's not what we perceive because of the spread in Iran, because of northern Italy's lockdown, because of uh, the impact in South Korea, that kind of stuff. And so the market uh, started to pay attention certainly on Friday and has uh, followed suit in spades right now. But again, if we were at a market low, I suspect that we wouldn't see this size of number. But we're at a market high, especially in the U.S., and that's why you're seeing people go, you know what? There's uncertainty out here. I'm going to take some profits. And of course, that means selling. Right. And I like the way you put this into context. That's why we always do check in with you, because when we're like, oh, my gosh, it's down almost a thousand points. And then we're but But wait, that's three point one seven percent of twenty eight thousand seventy three point three six. I mean, 
that's a that's a huge high number for the Dow in general. Well, our you know we've been talking about precisely these kind of events on Money Talks because our target literally over 10 years ago was 30,000 on the Dow as the first major obstacle. So I'm fascinated to see if that will prove to be the case. We got over 29,000. I did, you know, a lot of broadcasting about that mm -hmm. saying, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm nervous. And I recommended that people have a long look at their portfolios uh, and do it in advance of this kind of thing. You know, take some profits, make sure you're not overexposed. But there's a lot going on here, though. And I mean, one of the big things that sort of grabbed the market's attention, because it was interesting to see, other than one down day in the last sort of three, four weeks, the market had pretty much shrugged off the, the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. They hadn't done that, by the way, in Hong Kong. The market's there, the market's in Shanghai, that kind of stuff. But in North America, it had been a pretty big shrug. Uh, you know, gold went way up, though, and we saw money coming into the bond market, which is why interest, you know, when money goes into the bond market, interest rates go down. That's why we got a mortgage reduction about a week ago in the five-year fixed-term mortgage. But what I thought was interesting is when Apple came out, uh, I think it was Monday, Tuesday last week, and said, you know what, we can't even predict what the second quarter earnings are going to look like because we don't know the degree of the supply chain um, disruptions here. And that's one of the keys. That's why the market's paying attention. They're not, the market you know, at this point is not going to be worried about 200 cases here or this case. They're worried about supply and change disruptions. And Apple came right out and said it. And of course, it's one of the leading stocks in the world, has tremendous focus. And then you start realizing, well, the entire semiconductor industry gets about 29% of their revenues from China. Well, that's certainly going to be disrupted. You know, uh, other, you know, tech hardware is going to be disrupted. And you start seeing that's what I think brought to a lot of investors' attention that maybe this is more serious because, hey, if you can't get parts, you can't manufacture. And then you get news out of South, you know, it was, uh, I think it was South Korea that said, you know, Samsung said, you know what, we're going to close a couple factories here. We already know about the factory closings in China. So that's what it's all sort of unraveled uh, at this point and grabbed people's attention because it will have certainly an impact on the earnings of several companies. So where's gold at right now? Well, it's it's been just making the ever higher, and it's part of that safety trade. Uh, you know, gold, U.S. dollar, and U.S. bonds, all part of the same sentiment, which is, I want safety right now. And gold had already been in an uptrend. Uh, you know, it had sort of broken. We go back a year. It's been it's been a year to 14 months. It's been a pretty clear, you know, uptrend at this point. So then it breaks out, and you know, as they say, it's just momentum. Big move today. Again, not surprising. It's going opposite right now to what the stock market's doing. And by the way, same with the bonds. It's been a huge move. We have a, th you know, the 30-year bonds in the states. It's an all-time low. Uh, we're looking at 10-year bonds. You know, threatening the all-time low. You know, you can borrow. The U.S. government can borrow money for 10 years at 1.4 percent or less. You know, it's crazy. Uh, borrow for 30 years. We'll give it to you for under 2%. You know, you can, yeah. you'll get under 2%. So it's all of these things. You're absolutely right. It's gold, but it's interest rates. And look at the U.S. dollar, strong against everybody, including Canada. So obviously, we're catching up with you at the airport because we can hear the announcements yes. happening behind you. Thank you so much for squeezing us in here. I'm going to just keep you for a couple more minutes because yeah. I want your take on the person that's sitting in front of their computer that's doing their own trading or managing their mm -hmm. portfolio, and they're white-knuckling it right now. What should they do <laughs> or not do? Well, first of all, I'd like to say I'm still long-term bullish on the market. Uh, we had the World Outlook Conference, so a huge crowd uh, about two weeks ago. 
and every one of the analysts, and I choose analysts with great track records. That's what I love about this business is when you, you know, when you're on the air and you're talking politics with people, you know, it's, here's my opinion, there's their opinion, that kind of stuff. No, but when you talk about economics and finance, you'll get a scorecard soon enough. Mm. And the scorecard is every one of those analysts said, you've got to be ready for a correction at this point. Not, and the timing changed. It was all, everybody said yes within 2020, but whether it was going to come within two weeks, uh, by the way, which was our prediction on Money Talks, that you were coming into a panic cycle in, in our modeling here, uh, you know, with Martin Armstrong. And so we thought it might be shorter, but you know what? I'm still a long-term bull. And so you have to decide, are you a trader or are you a, you know, an investor? And then, as I say, investors should have been reviewing their portfolio. And it's not just hindsight. You should, you know, you have a big up, uh, run up. You should be reviewing your portfolio and making sure that you haven't become overexposed. Um, but I think investors, I mean, it's in quotes, always a bad time to, you know, to panic if you're an investor. But a lot of us make this mistake of start thinking like we're traders. You know, mm -hmm. we're not. Mm -mm. But we sort of, so we want to get the top or we want to pick the bottom. That's what a trader is more likely to do. I mean, good traders also don't concern themselves. But so, yeah, I think people have to relax here. I don't think this was a big surprise. Uh, you know, you should always be reviewing your portfolio and see if you've got too much risk. But come on, we have had this magnificent, you know, if we were talking, Jody, December 2018, so whatever that is, 14 months ago, uh, we would have been looking at a 22,000 Dow, not a 29,000 plus Dow. Right. So we've only given, uh, given away pretty much what we've gained this year. Uh, so again, Perspective. yeah, it's very important that, that not much is happening. I'll tell you this. We get more weakness. All I can tell you is on a personal level, I'll be a buyer. You know, because I'm, I'm still a long-term bull. So I welcome someone saying, hey, you want to be in the market? I'll give you a better price. And, and go, here's your opportunity. You. Right. Because yeah. when when it falls and then people are sell, 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 it's like, well, I'll pick up some of that at a lower than I thought I would. And I'll pick up some of that over there because I've done yeah. my research and my due diligence on those stocks that I'm going to be moving. Exactly. Yeah. So you talk to your financial advisor. But again, keep in mind that we've had such a strong run up. It's not unusual to give back about 50% of what you've just run up. Yeah. So, hey, we gave back 950, 1,000 points today. There should be, you know, we'll see if there's a little more to come or we'll see if the bargain hunters jump right in tomorrow morning. Yeah. Well, Michael Campbell, we always enjoy your perspective. Thank you very much for doing this. And of course, we'll be tuned in on Saturday at 8.30 for Money yeah, Talks. We'll have nothing, we'll have nothing. A ton to talk about. Just, nothing to I'll just talk tell about. You this. <laughs> yeah. There's no worry when you're at the... Oh, he was just going to tell us that and then we lose him on his tie line. That's okay. He's at the airport working so hard. That is Michael Campbell from Money Talks. I, he hooked me though. I really want to know what he was going to say. Then a busy Monday it is. Okay, we got the Cullen Commission that is going getting underway on money laundering here in the city. We are get, we're getting report from the the BC Coroner's office that the the numbers of fatalities related to uh, overdose deaths are identical to 2016. Um, Kind of good news, I guess, staving off some of, of of the growth in that area, but still three people a day dying from drug overdose is not great. We're going to be talking homelessness coming up as the Vancouver City Councilors are, are trying to declare a state of emergency to try and fix the crisis in this province with regard to homelessness. And piled on top of all of that, how about COVID-19? Yes, today uh, we learned of yet another case of COVID-19 or Novell coronavirus, the seventh case. It is connected with the case identified as the number six, which was last week. Claire Allen is in studio with me to uh, to talk us through, because we were at our morning meeting today discussing like the local impacts. One thing to mm -hmm. watch, the Dow dip a thousand points over fears, and it's affected Milan and South Korea right. and more, uh, Iran. We're hearing more yep. and more places. So what about what, what it's doing 
to our local community and economy. Right. So, I mean, you might have been on public transit and seen people wearing masks and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but you're right. In regards to our local economy, uh, COVID-19 and sort of the fears around the outbreak of COVID-19 have had a lot of impact on Metro Vancouver's Chinese restaurants. And actually, a lot of those restaurants have had to uh, temporarily shut down. Now, I spoke to Charlie Huang. He's the president of Canada Catering Association, which, Jody is a nonprofit group supporting the owners of Chinese restaurants. And he says that the fears over this COVID-19 outbreak have negatively impacted businesses. We have over 1,000 restaurant members. The businesses are down 80%. Some of them, no business at all. That's why they choose close first. Maybe we are open, reopen, maybe not. So he's saying there's a lot of uncertainty and that business is down 80% at a lot of Chinese restaurants. Um, and I know on the Linda Steele show, Eric Chapman had visited the Crystal Mall in Burnaby and he saw that there was, you know, nobody in the food court. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is a lot of uncertainty for these Chinese restaurants because they they don't even know, like, should we open today? Is there yeah. even a point? It's like the family style restaurants are, are a big issue in, in really the Chinese Canadian communities, like in Richmond and in downtown Vancouver, because mm-hmm. we had Ian Young from the South China Morning Post on. Yeah. And he was speaking to that, like he was at the Aberdeen food court out in Richmond that is usually packed. Yeah. Empty. Totally. Empty. Right. So I asked Charlie about how these closures have, you know, impacted the staff at these restaurants. Mm. And he said that owners have been forced to either cut back on hours for their staff or worse of all, they've had to lay off staff. And, you know, that reverberates through the community because a lot of these might be the sole income earner for the family. So they're seeing a lot of families struggling to make ends meet if they have their hours cut back or if they've been laid off. Brutal. So on Friday, Charlie Huang and other members of the uh, Canada Catering Association, they held a press conference asking for help from the municipal, provincial and federal governments. I asked Charlie what kind of help his organization would like to see from those levels of government. We hope to... Help the, our member. Government give uh, property tax like a quarter or half year free, and also uh, deduct property tax GST and the PST uh, uh, business license free. Give some relief. Yeah. So just to be clear, what he's saying is that he'd like to see um, Chinese eateries uh, um, offering sort of six uh, month tax exemptions on their municipal property tax, provincial sales tax and federal goods and service taxes, which is the GST. Um, So, you know, he's also that's kind of interesting Mm -hmm. because, you know, the restaurant industry is a very difficult industry that can be impacted by a lot of things. Like in the finance, during the financial crisis, you know, a lot of people didn't go out to eat and I'm sure it affected restaurant owners bottom line. So the the Canada Catering Association, which uh, oversees sort of Chinese eateries, they're asking for uh, exemptions on municipal property tax for six months, provincial sales tax and GST as well. And they've also put forward some recommendations for restaurant owners, including, you know, improving hygiene practices, strengthening food delivery services, so like uh, Skip the Dishes, Uber Eats, stuff like that, and offering 20% discounts as sort of an incentive to get people into the restaurants. Um, so in regards to what they would like to see, yeah. Premier John Horgan has said that it's you know unlikely that they will do this. Yeah. And he's just saying that he's encouraging people to get out there and support those businesses because that's the best way for them to recover right now. I remember in Toronto, I was living in, in Toronto and working actually in Scarborough, Ontario, which was ground zero for SARS. Mm-hmm. Like Scarborough General was literally up the street. It was unbelievably eerie during that time. Uh, I was working at Sportsnet and, and Jim Van Horn and I were, were there uh, in Scarborough. And when 
the government was starting to say, please go back to restaurants. Yeah. We went out to oh, one good. of the family style Chinese restaurants in Scarborough. And I swear it was a restaurant that probably sat 400. Mm-hmm. We're the only two people in it. But we, that's when I started noticing the, the green chopsticks, right? That were in the center of the table. Because when you're eating family style, everybody uses their own chopsticks to dish out their their food. And that was the thing that changed with SARS is now there was, these are the chopsticks that you use. Designated chopsticks. They don't go into anybody's mouth. So that if somebody, you know, when you're all eating out of one hot pot, it can be more, it can be Everybody gets sick. Right. But what it ended up coming down to, and I remember it so vividly because it wasn't just Chinese food restaurants. It was all of Toronto by the end of SARS, uh, prior to SARS Fest, that massive Rolling Stones concert. Mm -hmm. Um, They literally said free beer. Oh. Everywhere. Oh, I didn't every, know that. Yep. Anywhere, anyone, please come out, free beer. Like, is there something that the government might be able to do in support of? I understand not being able to say, okay, you get no GST, but your next door neighbor who isn't a Chinese restaurant yeah. doesn't, it still has to pay GST. I think that would be just a minefield for the, yeah. the government to, I mean, to navigate. I think it's interesting that the Canada Catering Association is asking for these exemptions, but I do not agree with them because, you know, as I mentioned, there have been other times where the entire restaurant industry has been impacted by global forces, whether it be mm-hmm. a economy or, you know, an outbreak of some sort, like this stuff, unfortunately happens. And I don't think that we can just shield one type, one type of business from, from, from that. No, but currently it is definitely this one Chinese Canadian community that is erring on the side of caution as Ian Young from the South China Morning Post pointed out to me is we don't consume necessarily the same mm-hmm. um, news that might be coming from mainland China. Yes. And he, the way he explained it, it's the the fear level is amped up of exponentially course. on WeChat than it is on CKNW because the Canadian government is managing this in a, in a way that is settling the nerves. Right. And we've heard Health Minister Adrian Dix, our provincial health minister, has said, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there about mm-hmm. how this virus is spread. And it is, you know, ratcheting up the fears with the misinformation out there. So they're trying to put forward a campaign to educate people about how COVID-19 is spread. It's glorious outside, but would you want to live outside? I'm guessing the answer is no. Homelessness is a massive problem in British Columbia and specifically in Metro Vancouver. Our hot question of the day is about the idea that a couple of city councillors in Vancouver have to declare a homelessness emergency. We've asked, do you think it's time for Vancouver City Hall to make this declaration to declare a homelessness emergency? It's a simple yes or no question. Right now we have a couple hundred votes and 66% of you say yes. It's time. Hit us up at Jody Vance. That's Jody with a Y Vance on Twitter or at CKNW. Leave your vote there. Or you can call our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ, 604-331-2899. And last but certainly not least, uh, old school email, Jody at CKNW.com. Joining me in studio is George Affleck, former NPA city councillor and co-host of Unspun Podcast at the Orca.ca. George, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. I immediately thought of you, both Ben Dooley and I were like, hmm, I wonder what George's take on this would be. And I texted you and said, what do you think? Will you come in? And you said yes. And then your next statement kind of blew my mind. Well, I said, is it okay if I'm supportive of the motion? I said, of course it is. <laughs> you come in and tell us why. Well, you know, it's uh, the motion itself is is political. Uh, it's because, you know, the, the meat of the motion is in the 
this question. It says urge the provincial and, f- and federal governments to to get involved in this and to get to eighty percent within three years. Uh, you know, in my time in council, we had the mayor's goal of getting to solve homelessness by twenty fifteen. Uh, I was always uh, skeptical because I said that this was an impossible goal for Vancouver to do on its own. That a strategic national provincial initiative needs to be done in order for us to solve what is absolutely an emergency. There are homeless people not only everywhere in the city, everywhere in this country and in other countries around the world. Homelessness is is a real problem. Los Angeles is dealing with this in a significant level. Why? Why is this happening and how do we solve it? Absolutely, it's an emergency and I think that we need to find a solution for this. And so if this motion comes into play, it's the first domino to fall to then perhaps garner some attention from the provincial government to work in tandem with? You know, that I mean, like- Ottawa's already done a motion similar to this, yeah, which yeah. is where Pete and Gene Swanson uh, got this motion from. Um, you know, it, it comes down to, and in, in the last part of the motion is asking FCM, the National Association of All the C- Cities Across Canada, to endorse this and take it to the federal government. Um, I think that the key there is, is uh, other cities across the country getting vocal about this problem. Even if you don't have a homelessness problem in your city, it's time that we as a country uh, and every corner of this country come to terms with the fact that we have a situation, a problem with too many people sleeping on the streets. And Being housed should be a human right. Yeah, and that's the federal government has, as it states in this motion, has pushed that through. Uh, but if you, you can state these things, but if you don't do anything to solve the problem, you're not getting anywhere. And as we know, based on the counts where homelessness keeps going up, 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 why and what's the solution? So I'm just going to open up the phones uh, for the next segment, but I know Ben's going to want to like, it's going to light up the phone boards is my uh-huh. prediction. Uh, 604-280-9898. Do you have a solution? Do you think an, uh, declaring an emergency is a solution or the first step in the right direction? Your thoughts on this, we're going to have you chime in coming up in just a couple of minutes with George Affleck and, uh, and I, but I want to kind of dial in, George, in your expertise on, it doesn't matter in my mind whether it's a a city initiative, a provincial initiative, or a federal initiative, there's only one taxpayer and someone's going to have to pay for building, maintaining, Mm -hmm. and running. And and so many of our most vulnerable, marginalized community requires supports that are, whether it be mental health or addiction issues or just health issues in general. Yeah. And the city has a, a program for paying for operations about, I think it's either 10,000 per unit per year for specific uh, uh, sites that that have housing for for core need uh, people. But just on the back of the napkin, and you know, don't hold me to this number, but it gives you an idea of the cost of this idea of, of Pete's and, and Jean's. Uh, you know, let's say we need 5,000 homes. The average cost of building a unit in, say, Vancouver or the region is about $250,000. So you multiply 5,000 by $250,000. Base cost to build 5,000 homes is about $1.2 billion. So that's just to build them. That's including, that's not even including potentially the real estate to purchase to put these homes on. So that's a significant purchase. If you take the population of province and you divide that, you know, which is about 5 million people, it's about $250 per person just for the construction of these sites. Uh, so obviously not every man, woman, and child is going to be paying 250 bucks. So that means, so that I think if we start with saying, okay, we need $1.2 billion, where is that going to come from? 
obviously it can't come just from taxation. It just can't. So what can the government do? Governments do. Land incentives, Vancouver already has that in place. Uh, provincial governments say they have things federally. And how do we you know, share this pain and, and this cost across the country through private sector, through public sector? Who's going to pay in, in, in this case, say in BC, $1.2 billion to build these homes? It's, it's the ultimate question. And, and, and add into the cost of health care and the drug addiction, all those other things, which is part of the complexity of this. Let's go back to that $250,000 per to build. What are you building? Well, these would be permanent homes. This isn't temporary modular housing. While that's an interesting and helpful program, it's temporary. They're modular. It's not permanent homes for people. We need to build permanent housing for uh, the people who need it most, for sure. But all everybody, even my kids, we all need more housing. Mm-hmm. And let's not get into the supply and demand debate that always descends going. What our focus needs to be truly affordable housing. How do we build this housing that, that people can't, that, 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 that the base, this, this, this homeless uh, situation we have with two, two, over 2,000 people in Vancouver, almost 3,000. Uh, how do we solve that problem? And again, it's not just housing. This is a multiple, multi-layer problem that we have to find a solution for, whether it be healthcare, drug addiction, and housing. And clearly here in Metro Vancouver, the issue is exponentially growing. I mean, Oppenheimer Park, we've talked about it a ton, you and I, over the years now of that sort of ebb and flow of it becoming a a tent city and then people Mm -hmm. find housing and then it's a tent city again. And now it's even moved sort of to that San Francisco model, right? Yeah, it's a permanent uh, facility now for for tents. Uh, They've, uh, the provinces uh, or the city is, uh, you know, they brought in the Portland Housing Society and they're they're administrating the operations now of the site, providing food and all those things. Uh, So they've created a permanent facility now, site. On a park uh, for homeless, and uh, that's a decision by the park board that they made. Um, and, but is that the solution to homelessness? I no, don't think it's absolutely so. not a solution. But keeping people safe because the, the situation there was becoming untenable. It really was, mm-hmm. and and yeah, this absolutely. is this is one opportunity or one option, one avenue, I guess, that maybe everybody might not agree upon, but at least it's not as spiraled as it was even just a couple of weeks ago yeah, or a month ago. Uh, yeah, and a lot of attention's been paid at, on mm-hmm. to Oppenheimer Park. And a lot I of money's been paid. Being, yeah, but yeah. We, we still haven't come to a solution federally, provincially, on a strategic housing plan for truly affordable housing for people across this country. Jody Vance in for Simi Sarah alongside George Affleck, former NPA city councillor. And we are talking about Vancouver City Councillors wanting the city to declare a homelessness emergency. It's uh, Gene Swanson and Pete Fry are calling on the rest of council to create an emergency plan with the provincial and federal governments, along with regional partners and other BC municipalities to try and fix what clearly is broken. Absolutely. I mean, I think we have uh, a generational problem here, and not only in, in Vancouver and all of Canada, around the world. It, this is happening everywhere, and it's based on decisions that were made by governments in the 80s and 90s that have led to this situation where we have significant homelessness problems, not only in Canada, but in Denmark and the United States. And, and we're not just UK talking about people on the downtown east side here. We're talking about people who lost their job for whatever reason, find themselves like out of wherever they were able to afford before and just can't find anything even remotely affordable to yeah. move into next. Boom, new, new, the, new member of the homeless community. That's right. The city tries to separate the street homelessness versus homelessness. So mm-hmm. they try to define uh, and break it down into those two categories. There's a difference between the people who are marginally homeless because of that kind of situation and, and the ones who are not or have made chronically, homer, chronically homeless. homeless. So, yeah, yeah. so how do we solve, which one do we solve first? 
Let's get to our phone lines because, boy, you want to talk about this. If you'd like to get on board, 604-280-9898. We'll roll through here. Jeff in Vancouver, you're up first. Welcome to the show. Hi, um, Jody and... uh George. Uh, Mr. Affleck, yes. George, yeah. Um, I'm a Vancouver City resident. I work in the tourism industry here in Vancouver. Uh, twice in the last two days, I had tourists from California ask me if we have a homeless problem. They don't normally ask that, uh, and uh, but they did. And we were, we were just doing a transfer, not a tour of the city. Uh, but on the tour of the city, I do talk about the downtown east side and so on and so on. So uh, just for your information, uh, Governor of California Newsom was on a rerun with Seth Meyer last week. And he said 25% of the U.S. homeless population is in California. That's 151,000 people. And I know from recently being in San Francisco a few years ago in Los Angeles, it is growing. It is unbelievable. And on 60 Minutes on December 1st last year, so just a couple months ago, they did a story on Seattle. In the King County area, there are 11,000 homeless people, of which 5,000 are unsheltered, meaning they don't have a home or a shelter or anything like that. So we're, we're seeing homeless people in Vancouver now in almost every neighborhood all the time. It is definitely out of control. Uh, I think the help is going to have to come from an immediate meeting or what have you from all three levels of government. Certainly, this needs to be accelerated immediately. Thank you for that, Jeff. Appreciate your perspective on it. And George, it's pretty much echoing what you've been saying. Yeah, and the population of California is the population of Canada. Yes. So you could also argue California is a microcosm of, uh, or, or a macrocosm, or, or an exact replica of Canada in its, in its volume of, of people that are homeless. And I think we have those kind of numbers in Canada that it's getting into the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people. Robin in Vancouver, you're up next. What are your thoughts on this? Welcome to the show. Well, I've got two things to, two things. Okay. First of all, where are you going to get cheap, affordable property or land to build cheap housing or, you know, affordable housing? And how about in the summer, why can the city draw up plans to, to house homelessness people during the winter, during November, December, when the storms are around? And I'll hang up and listen. Thank you very much, Robin. I think, George, you've mentioned there's a lot of city land that could easily... <laughs> well, certainly most cities are, the, are, and certainly in Vancouver, are the biggest landowners. We own more real estate in Vancouver than any, anybody else in the city. So, you know, if you include roads and everything. So mm-hmm. is there a property in Vancouver? For sure. Is Vancouver going to be able to solve homelessness on its own? No. No. So we have to look at the region. If you go out to the valley, you go to outside the city, there are there is land. But of course, land, the cost of land is a significant challenge. And... Uh, but again, this is a national crisis, as as the motion states. This is something that's not just in Vancouver. So how do we deal with this? And, and property in Saskatchewan and other places isn't quite as expensive as, as it is in Vancouver. What is the strategy nationally? How do we uh, deal with this crisis, this problem, this emergency, as it states in the motion uh, on a national level? It's a symptom of a greater problem. That, that, as you mm-hmm. mentioned, it's it's actions taken or not taken years ago. Policy decisions made in the 80s yes. and 90s, whether it be housing or healthcare or uh, or, or institutionalization, uh, changed the way we we house people. Six zero four two eight zero ninety eight ninety eight is the number if you want in on this conversation. Malcolm in North Van, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning. Good, morning. Oh, good afternoon. I've I've railed on this one on radio for a long time. Okay. You've got the property at Little Mountain. The city of Vancouver, and I know it from my friends who are contractors, is one of the worst places to try to get permits to get things built. So to the city of Vancouver, get off your ass and start putting social housing back into Little Mountain. 
it is sitting there. That is a huge swath of land. Yeah, you know what, Malcolm? Infrastructure. You're going to love this. I wrote a column about this two weeks ago on theorca.ca. Exactly that. The big issue in the city of Vancouver seems to be that the permitting office is is like a backlog, a nightmare to get stuff built. And what you taught me, George Affleck, is that, because I'm like, well, obviously affordable housing is going to have a preferred spot in that lineup. No, there's no, there's no preferred spots. There is a, there is a program in Vancouver called the Rental 100, which provides some uh, speed of, of permitting and some uh, leverage uh, if you're building a rental market rental housing. Uh, again, though, the, this can't just be about Vancouver and Little Mountain. Actually, we we mandated uh, when I first got elected that a site, a building, be built there by the developer immediately, and it was built. So there, there is some housing on that site. But uh, he's right that there. How do we? You know, this is an issue of of property. It's an issue of speed, and you know. If you look at the last election, the big uh, campaigns by some political parties and candidates was about supply and demand and mm-hmm. supply us. And it's very controversial. Uh, so I don't want to get into that debate, but getting things built faster, whatever level, is, is one solution to getting to more housing. I'm going to sneak in one more. I probably shouldn't do this. I've only got 30 seconds, but I want MJ's take in Chilliwack. MJ, welcome to the show. you got 30 seconds. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to say, why don't they help people before they become homeless? I have a full-time job waiting for me. I had a stroke a year ago, and I can't find anybody to pay for my occupational therapy to help me get back to work. That is a great point. Thank you. I'm so glad we snuck MJ in here because that is... A that was something that was left picture. out of the budget, was an increase in the welfare rates. Uh, people were quite surprised by that. So we're not also providing enough uh, income to the to some of the people who are in desperate need of, of money to survive. Uh, and so that needs to be looked at as well. But that costs money. And so we have to think about the balancing of the budgets and the cost to all the taxpayers. It's like, what are the priorities things. of what we're spending on? Let's, yeah. let's do the budget from the most vulnerable up instead of the flashiest, funnest pie in the sky it does doesn't it george affleck thank you very much for coming in and i'm very pleased to welcome to the show somebody that you will recognize if you love your vancouver canucks because you remember Corey hirsch and he's here not to talk hockey on this trade deadline day but something well i'm going to say even more important Corey, thanks for being with us hey jody thank you for having me today i just uh finished the trade deadline so i'm uh I'm all yours. I love this. Good timing. <laughs> well, I was scrolling through my social media, and I saw a picture of you and another fabulous uh, former Canuck alumni in uh, Kirk McLean. You guys are working on a project that I thought our listeners would be very interested in. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I, I don't know a ton about the project in terms of what I can, uh, what I can say and what I, what I can't say about it right now, but it's... Uh, the government is is really trying to make a dent in the in the opioid crisis and 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 helping these people that are really struggling and uh, ultimately the what Kirk and I are in it for is is to encourage men that are our age or even a, a little bit younger. I'm getting up there in, in years. Hey, easy there, pal. We're the yeah. same age. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Yeah. But it's to encourage. It, it, there's a real issue with men and getting help right now, and it, it's um, we're. Kirk and I are, are are trying to get the word out to let other men out there know that you know what it's okay to not be okay that um, you can still be a man and you can still be a strong man and you can still uh, do a lot of wonderful things uh, that there's no shame in going and getting help and you know masculinity sometimes keeps us from that um, because of you know our upbringing as men right and we're taught not to talk about our stuff and and not to show you know any any vulnerability. And, you know, what really what Kirk and I are doing is trying to help get the word out with, through the government that 
um, you know what? It's okay to show vulnerability. It's okay to get help. And you know what, Hershey? I just love this so much as a mother of a 12-year-old, you know, because he can hear it all day from me and he roll his eyes. Yeah, mom, you're supposed to say that. But guys talking to guys about it being okay to not be okay and need a hand is cool. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it, right? It's, it's, um, I have a, a 19 year old son and it's the same thing for me. And, and, you know, it's people, I, I think, look at Kirk and I as professional athletes or, or were, um, which, you know, in hockey, which is one of the most manly macho things you can be. Um, but you know, as we talk, you and I have said, mental health doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete, a doctor, a lawyer, work in construction, work, you know, uh, what doing whatever. Um, and it, it's, it's up to, you know, men like Kirk and I to try and get the word out. Like even just because we grew up in a locker room and we were hockey players and, um, that it's okay to go and get help, that it's okay to show vulnerability, that, um, you know, suffering in silence is not being any more of a man than, than getting help. Right. In, in actual, getting help is what makes you a man. And can I specifically reference your piece in the Players' Tribune of February 15th, 2017? Share with our listener who may not be aware of what, of what it took for you to get to the point where sharing that uh, was a necessity and what's happened since. Yeah, well, I mean, the, a big part of the reason I shared it was is because I know there's a lot of other people out there that struggle just like I did. Uh, but also, it took me 20 years to get that out, right? I mean, from from time I was diagnosed to the time that article came, so it wasn't like it was just overnight. And I was like, yeah, it took me a long time to come to terms with um, being able to share publicly, you know, what I went through it. And that was a lot of that was due to stigma and, and toxic, you know, and masculinity and, and being like, I didn't want to show anybody that I had issues or vulnerability. But what I realized was is that, you know, it makes, like we talked about, it, it makes you more of a man to be able to go and get help um, and be better for those around you, better for your families, better for your friends. Um, and we're in a real crisis right now with, with our suicide rates for middle-aged men is, is off the charts. Um, and that needs to change. So tell our listener what you were dealing with uh, and what your diagnosis was. Yeah, so I, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder, and a lot of people think obsessive compulsive disorder is, uh, you know, hand washing or being neat or overly organized, right? I mean, that that was kind of the the, uh, the understanding of what OCD was. But when my article came out, it kind of blew the doors off of that because OCD, the type of OCD that I have, is all done in my head. So it's you know, it's a lot of re- repetitive, deep, dark thoughts that I didn't want there that I I couldn't get rid of. And the best way I can explain it is, is you know, you're driving down the road, there's traffic coming towards you, and we've all had that thought of swerving, you know, what if I swerve my car in the other lane, and, and blah, blah, blah. Most people go after something, a thought like that, they go, well, that was a silly thought, and they go on with their day, and they uh, and nothing, they don't really think of it again. Someone like me with obsessive-compulsive disorder, I would ruminate on it, I would wonder why I had that thought, and then eventually I would just stop driving my car, you know, terrified of something terrible happening. Um hmm. So that's kind of the OCD that I had that that wasn't quite understood, and um, you know, it took me. Like I said, it took it took me from point of uh, you know diagnosis to getting help. I need took ten years, which is way too long. Uh, we need to shrink those wait times for people and have a better referral system. And then it was another ten years before my article came out. So I'm thankful we're getting to a place now where 
you know, uh, uh, the stigma is kind of ending. People are talking, uh, but now we need to get people the help they need. And what ended up helping you? Uh, really therapy, just finding a therapist that knew how to do uh, therapy called ERP. So exposure response prevention. It's like uh, CBT, but it's like on steroids. It's, uh, it's really difficult. <laughs> it was not fun. No. I did not enjoy it, but it changed my life. Um, and it, you know what? And it was about finding the right therapist. Um, you know, it's like you don't go, you don't, you don't blow out your knee and then go and see a shoulder surgeon, right? Right. Um, you, you go see a knee surgeon. So with obsessive compulsive disorder, I needed to find somebody that specialized in, in OCD. And then I finally realized that that's what I needed. And then I went and found someone that did. And that's what helped me. I got to say, Corey, what you're doing, I'm, I've known you for a long time. I'm so proud of you for being as, as open and vocal and driven as you are. Just I'm, I need to tell you that I'm proud of you. And I think what you're doing is making a difference every day, including right now, today. And, and there are so many people who have, who have watched you and looked up to you who now feel like they've been given the go-ahead to be able to say out loud, I suffer from anxiety and I don't know what to do. And that's the first step, right? It, it really is. And, you know, and thank you for saying that. I, I, don't, I don't feel you know, any different. But it's, uh, I, I know that, you know, just it's getting the word out and just, yeah. and just talking about it. Like, well, why, why, is, is, why can we talk about someone, if I had a heart issue, I'd be able to tell everybody, right? right? But all of a sudden, if something in my brain, which is a physical part of my body, which is the most complex part of our body we have, we don't quite understand it, why do we expect them to be perfect? They're not perfect. They're mm-hmm. going to break. It's just, it's just the way it is. We're humans. We're physical beings. Nobody's brain on the planet is perfect. No. And, you know, we need to let people know that, you know what, like we talk about, it's okay to not be okay. And it's, it's okay to go get help because, um, you know, what you, you will get help for a sore knee or a heart issue, but you won't get some, go get help for something that's going on in your brain. That makes absolutely zero sense to me. And somebody who might have something going on in their brain might feel I'm broken and I'm beyond repair. And that's just not the case. Yeah, and that's exactly it, right? Is is that you're not broken and you're not beyond repair. There's help available. There's, um, you know, there's lots of programs out there. There's lots of good therapists, good doctors. There's, there's so much at our fingertips, medications, everything. Um, but you have to take that first step. You have to go get the help. Um, you can't force somebody to go get help. Uh, so it's up to the individual to go and get it done. So having that conversation around the dinner table, or I love this um, this guy out of the the U.S. just started like a dog walking uh, program for buddies, guys walking dogs with guys. And, uh, you know, it might take them 10, 15, 50 dog walks to kind of get to past the, hey, how's it going, what's new? But they eventually <laughs> get there. Like, it, it's just don't, it. don't stop the conversation and, and find the guy in your life you feel comfortable talking with if it's not cool for you, if you feel like you can't tell your gal or you really don't want to talk to your parents or, you know, find, find the person. Yeah, no, right. and DM me, text me, I'll, I'll listen, right? And that's, and that's the other side of it too, Jody, is the biggest thing, if someone comes to you with a mental health issue or wants to talk, the biggest thing you can do and the greatest gift you can give them is just to listen. You're not qualified to solve their problems. Right. You're not qualified to deal with their anxiety or depression. That's, you know, that's something else. A lot of times people just want to talk and they want to know that they're okay. Um, and that the, the greatest gift is that you can listen without judgment uh, without judgment is a key, 
um, because none of us are perfect human beings and encourage them to go get help. Encourage that therapy is available that, you know what, they might not right away come to you um, per se. Somebody, if you, but if you let somebody know that you're safe to talk to and that you're not going to judge them and that you're going to get them help, eventually they will come to you. It might be two weeks. It might be six months. It might be a year. But if a person is struggling and you let them know that you're a safe person to talk to, um, eventually they'll probably open up to you. Big piece of the puzzle. My my favorite three words, I hear you. Yeah. My favorite three. I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know what? And that's, that's fantastic. I'm going to use that. I'm stealing that. It's all yours. <laughs> you take it, buddy. And how do people find you? Well, I'm on Twitter at yep. Corey Hirsch. Um, I'm on Instagram at Corey Hirsch 72, uh, Facebook I'm on. So I'm, I'm easily accessible and, um, I might not get to you right away, but I'll eventually get to your messages and, and we'll see if, uh, you know, if we can help you. But again, it's, you know, and, and not to discount the females in this because there's females out there that struggle too. And, and but, uh, you know, my my personal, uh, where I'm trying to make an impact is on youth, of course, um, uh, because I believe that, you know, that we should have basic knowledge in middle school, high school yeah. uh, of, you know, mental health. Uh, and the other, you know, my other impact is I hope that I got their middle-aged men see me and, and they go and get help and that it's, you know, like it, that it's okay that, you know, you can still be a hockey player or a broadcaster or whatever. Uh, and you can still, I'm still a man. You <laughs> are. It doesn't change. And a fabulous man at that. Well, Corey, thank well, you for thank doing you. this, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. You're Jerry. awesome. Corey Hirsch, former Vancouver Connects goaltender. Of course you knew that. And now a Connects analyst on Sportsnet 650. You can find him on Twitter and on Instagram. And I'll make sure that I put a link to this conversation up on Twitter if you just tuned in and went, hey, I want to hear that. Claire Allen, CKNW contributor. You know her, you love her. Great working mate. We're talking about working. Yes. Working together and enjoying working together. And I have to say that you're one of my favorite people to work with. Ah, you too, Jody. It's not just a radio thing. It's actually real. <laughs> but you're not my boss, right? Like, oh, we, God, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> so we've all heard stories about bad bosses, Jody. I mean, oh, yes. they even made a whole movie about it. Mr. Harkin, can I speak to you? Yeah, sure. What is it? You know, for months you've been hinting that I was in line for that promotion. And look how hard you've been working. What, were you just lying to me? Lying? No, Nick. Motivating. You know that last month you made me work so late, I missed saying goodbye to my gam-gam? I'm sorry, what? My grandmother, I told you that I needed to see her because she was very, very sick. You said if I left early, I'd get fired. And she died before I made it to the hospital. I'm sorry. Thank you. I had no idea that you called your grandmother So, of course, that's Horrible Bosses, the yes. movie. But what I'm about to tell you isn't a story about a bad boss, Joni. Okay. No. it's This is a story about a pair of great bosses here in BC. So, jo- uh, Jason Kellen and his wife, Lori, they own an A&W franchise about two kilometers outside of uh, Ladysmith in the Oyster Bay development area. Now, three of their employees, Catherine, Kelly, and Marielle, have all worked at this franchise for over 10 years, which is pretty rare. Wow. Yeah. And since Jason and Lori are coming up on their uh, the 10-year anniversary of owning the franchise, they thought that they would give their three loyal, hardworking employees a thank you gift. We knew we, know we wanted to do something really big. At that point, my wife, Lori, said, well, why don't we just do an all-inclusive vacation and 
I couldn't think of a better way to celebrate the time and effort that they put into our business. I knew it would be an exciting experience for them. A lot of them haven't actually traveled out of the country. So to me, it was just about giving our employees a great experience that potentially they never would have had in their life. So isn't that amazing? I love that. I know. So he's paying for, he and his wife are paying for everything for those three employees, Catherine, Kelly, and Muriel, and their spouses to go with that, to go on any vacation they like. It does not like, oh, we'll choose for you to go to Mexico. One's choosing to go to Mexico, one's choosing to go to Alaska, and the other one hasn't made up their mind. Pretty great, right? I have goosebumps. I know. So I asked Jason how his three employees reacted to this very generous gift. Well, naturally, they were pretty surprised. Hopefully, it wasn't much of a surprise. You know, we like to reward our staff when they've done great things for us. They were super excited and particularly uh, Muriel at the moment. She's the only one that actually had a passport. So she is leaving on vacation this Sunday to Mazatlan on a a one-week all-inclusive paid trip. And that to us was key. We didn't want there to be any additional expenses for them. We just wanted them to be able to go and Oh my goodness, Jason. So it's really nice. And he said that, you know, why the reason why he wanted to gift them with this incredible experience is because many business owners talk about the challenges of finding reliable long-term employees. And Jason said it was really important that he let Catherine Kelly and Mariel know about how much he he appreciates their dedication to their jobs. When you do have employees, particularly in the fast food industry that have been around for 10 years, that's, that's a rarity. I think the important thing to stress here is that that when you've had employees for 10 years, they know the ins and outs of the business. So when you get new employees in, they bring them up to the standard that uh, that you've set. And of course, it essentially snowballs from there. So they continue to uphold the standards that, that my wife and I set quite a few years ago. And you really can't buy that. So the customers or guests know them. Uh, they know the guests by first names. Sometimes the order's up before the guest even gets to the till. So... That's something special. Uh, I, I think as, as, as a guest myself in other restaurants, if that happened to me, I would feel pretty special. And uh, I think that's, that's the connection. So Jason, he isn't doing this for publicity. I literally had to like hunt him down, <laughs> finding him and like, he's a member of a lot of chamber of commerce sort of organizations. And I had to find his number through like a Facebook group where they listed it. And so he's not doing this. He's not on a publicity tour of like, look mm-hmm. at me, I'm a wonderful boss. He says that he's hoping that this will send a larger message to other business owners about how to treat their employees. Humans by nature want appreciation. It's almost as important as food and drink to them. So just appreciate your staff. Treat them as people. And if you were them, how would you like to be treated? Totally. I know. He's a lovely man. It's the empowerment piece, right? Like when he was speaking about, you know, they trained those three uh, employees 10 years ago mm-hmm. to a standard. Yes. And now everybody who comes in, a new employee is going to be tra- trained to that standard. That's priceless. That's totally. invaluable. Right. And I mean, I have a friend who owns uh, two franchises and he's spoken exactly about what Jason said there is that, you know, having someone like that, a long-term employee that, that you know can, that you can handle trust. yeah, the business if you're not there, you're right, is priceless, Jody. And so I really want to commend Jason Kellen and his wife, Lori, for what they're doing because, you know, what he said, everyone likes to feel great and And it's nice to be known as a great boss. And I think Jason is a great boss. An example of that on Vancouver Island. To Jason and Lori. (laughs) But Jody, uh, Jody, I want to know if you have a story about a great boss. I have a couple of stories about a great boss. My 
I've got to say the person who gave me the most opportunity is definitely Scott Moore, mm-hmm. who was the um, creator and the developer and the man who launched Sportsnet. Right. So he he actually gave me the opportunity to work there. But interestingly enough, another that came to mind was actually from a volunteer position that I had. I was on the volunteer board for the Greater Vancouver Open. Remember the golf tournament yeah. that happened years ago uh, that turned into the Air Canada Championship. And I got to work with Todd Lywicki, who is now the president of the, the NHL team, the Kraken in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And he was the most empowering boss and everybody loved working for and with Todd. Cause even if you said, I, I love working for you, he's like, you're not working for me. We're working and together. He, he would look at you and say, I want, I need this done or let's do this together. And then he'd say, and if I don't hear from you, I, I'm just going to assume it's done. And whatever you need, whatever you think needs doing, do it. Cause I trust you. And his catchphrase was Nike. Just do it. Just do it. <laughs> That's really it. nice. Empowerment, right? Yes. Not, I'm going to need to check all your work before you do anything, Yeah, I'm going to have to look over yeah. everything. Yeah, because mm. I don't trust you. What about right? you? So um, this is just a nice example I have of a boss. I In 2011, I was working at Earl's in Yale Town while I was interning here at NW. And uh, I was working at during the um, Stanley Cup final game, ah. the Canucks versus the Bruins. Yeah. Well, I was scheduled to work on that day, but I ended up being offered tickets to the game. Ooh. But I had like, I don't know, two hours notice. And so I. Just, had, and it's kind of a busy night at the Earl's exactly, in Yale Town. And they would need someone, yes. although I did probably forfeit a lot of money that I could have made that night. True. Anyways, uh, so I called down there and I just said, hey, my manager's name was Scott. And I said, hey, like, I've been offered this great opportunity and like, I know I'm supposed to be working and blah, blah. And he was just like, you know what? This is a once in a lifetime thing. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. I just want you to have a great night. Awesome. And I always thought about that because it could have been like, sorry, the schedule is set in stone and you right. need to come in. But he was just like, have a great time. Mind you, it wasn't the greatest night for Vancouver no. hockey fans. <laughs> what time did but, you get home, Claire? Yeah, I got stuck yeah. in that riot, yeah, which was too. pretty awful. But um, but anyway, I just thought that was so nice to look at someone's life more than just their work. You know, you think about this is an amazing opportunity my employee has. I can figure it out. I mean, I'm sure someone made a couple, like at least a couple hundred bucks because I for didn't sure. show up. For but sure. I always thought that was nice. A I nice think thing. So many talk so many talk about horror stories. Mm-hmm. It's nice that we're celebrating some great stories. And yeah. I love Jason and it's Jason and Laurel. Jason and Lori Kellen. Lori Kellen. Yes. Um for doing that. Uh, and it's just it's amplified an extra special, not done for PR purposes. And they gave all three of their employees the opportunity to take any vacation they wanted. Uh, there's so much about that story I love. Thanks for bringing it forward. Of course. Thank you, Jody. How you doing on the ride hailing, ride sharing thing? Are you using your Uber? You're, you're picking up your Lyft? Are you finding that cabs are easier to come by? I'm in that third group. Every time I've needed a taxi in the last month, boom, right there in front of me. It's like, whoa, I'm, I have to check myself. Am I still in Vancouver? What? Because there was a time where we were literally not going out, ever, ever. Didn't matter what day of the week it was, and certainly not on a weekend. Certainly not if there's a concert or a, a hockey game or a football game, whatever, any event. But this is now officially one month to the day since ride sharing entered the, the Metro Vancouver market. So what sort of impact is it having in the area from the hospitality side of things? Has the impact been positive? Let's bring in Nate Sabine, who is a board member in Hospitality Vancouver Association, Director of Business Development for Blueprint, which owns a number of bars, pubs, and nightclubs, etc. here. Nate, thanks for being with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So? So, the first month has been great. Good. I mean, we don't have any hard stats yet. It's a little bit early for that. But just in conversation and 
with our staff, patrons, everybody. And uh, just seeing the lift in business this year over typically what is kind of a soft time of year, yeah, it's, it's been fantastic and, like, long-awaited. Long-awaited is so overdue. Oh, my gosh. We were all so tired of talking about it. Like, when's it going to come? When's it going to come? It's going to come this year, this Christmas, next Christmas, okay, in a month. <laughs> yeah. It was just, okay. But here yeah. it is. It's here. And I'd imagine from a perspective of a nightclub, a bar, a pub, or a restaurant, there's some comfort in knowing that you're not going to have a frustrated patron standing in your doorway on a pouring rain, miserable night in Vancouver for 45 minutes or an hour being angry that there's no taxi. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, guest experience is everything in our business. And when it starts out negative, it can easily stay that way. So between that and then knowing that safety and security is, is always top of mind for us, knowing that they can leave our venues at 2, 3 in the morning and get somewhere safely, I mean, it is. It's definitely peace of mind. There was that piece of the puzzle. I'm not sure where your venues are, but I know that there's a piece of the puzzle just to the aggro that there was outside of, say, on the Granville Entertainment mm-hmm. District. Uh, right around the time the bars did close for the night, as people weren't just vying for cabs, they were, they were having altercations about cabs. Yeah, yeah. It gets to be like Lord of the Flies. Like, you see completely normal, rational people just go crazy over trying to get a cab, and you can understand why. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's rainy, you're tired, you know, you're hungry, you just want to get home. And having all, being able to circumvent all of that, is, it, it's been a game changer, and we expect to see it um, even further. Because there are, you know, there are still waits, everything's not perfect oh, yet. Sure. We put forth some pickup and drop-off zones to the city via um, Lyft. And those haven't been enacted yet, but we expect to see some movement on that soon, which will just make everything in the GED that much smoother. We're with Nate Sabine, who is a Hospitality Vancouver Association board member and director of business development for Blueprint, which owns a number of bars and pubs and nightclubs. What did you see in terms of when the frustration was sort of getting amplified, like right around the holiday season? Did you have a lesser... Uh, a less successful, I guess, holiday season as a result of people not being able to uh, secure a ride home? Because I know for me personally and my group of friends, we just, if we're, if we're not going within walking distance, we're not going. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know what? We didn't really because people were still willing to trudge it out. But that's, again, it's not ideal. Right. People are wa- will do it, but, but nobody wants it. Nobody likes it. And the fact that this was promised to come down the pipeline for so long definitely didn't help it but the frustration was more of a daytime thing you know you'd hear the announcement in the day and then it was just like oh for the love of god and then you just go on with your life and <laughs> and go and have a good time yeah that i use that term quite a bit i have to admit yeah. now with regard to the pickup and drop off zoning that you're referencing um i have no idea where your b- pubs and bars are but maybe you can give us an idea of of the 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 sort of tweaks to this that that we might need to see moving forward in that regard we just need closer proximity to the area. Um, and it's as simple as that. You know, there are lots of zones on either side of Granville Street. We own, we own Venue and right. Colony Entertainment District gotcha. on Granville Street. So we're very, very aware and, uh, and involved in everything that goes down there. So, yeah, we just need closer proximity. It's, it's you know, on a level playing field where, where rideshare can drop off just like taxis can drop off. And, you know, and it makes it that much more accessible for people. I have to say that in the first week of ride sharing being available in Vancouver, I was driving home from doing this job after, I guess it was about 6.15, 6.30, and I was driving home and this vehicle that looked like a private person's vehicle stopped in front of a hotel 
and just like blocked my lane. And I was all mm. like, come on. And then I realized, wait a minute, that's a, that's an Uber. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we all need to take a moment to just be like, wait, we're used to a taxi doing that. If the, yeah, the car isn't yeah. yellow with a light on, it's, you know. Yeah, exactly. You're expecting something different. I know I did, did a double take when I saw my first Uber drive by with the little sign in the window. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I felt like I, I wasn't in Vancouver for a second. I know. You know? I, I almost can't believe it's it's finally happening, Nate. <laughs> I know. It's crazy. Like, we have businesses in, in Calgary, too, and they've had rides here for quite a while. And it is a, the number one thing for our business there. Like, it's, it's such a huge deal over there. I mean, you know, they have extreme cold. We have extreme rain at times. Yeah. So, so again, it's just we've, been, we've had it there, and it's the safety and security. And now to have it over here, it's just, we, you know, we couldn't ask for more. So when you said venue and colony, you have that new colony on uh, the Granville Entertainment District, right? Mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. a party of a place, man. Yeah, yeah, we, uh, we, yeah, we're, we're really happy with it. I dig it the old school pinball machines. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. No, I'm the same. I'm, uh, you know, I'm definitely of that era. Yeah. And I, I love it too. It's just there's something for everybody. Are you associated with the one on West Broadway as well? Yes. Yeah, okay. We own all four, and we've got one opening in Steveston, um, June one. This is not a sponsored segment, but I'm going to no, tell you my my walking distance is to the Colony on West Broadway. Oh, nice. It's so fantastic. My kid loves it. Are you kidding me, Galaga? Uh, I know. He I know. loves it. You get to relive it all. Oh, yes. And delicious burgers to boot. Nate, thank you for well, taking some you. time out for us here. My pleasure. Take care. I love a good news story, especially when it pertains to ride hailing and ride sharing services.